Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the the ability that we have to open up the Word today. And uh, Lord, I know that all the circumstances that have led up to this moment are all ordained by you, by your sovereign will. We profess that we need we need you to be in control, and thank goodness you are. And in fact, as we go through this chapter 11, I, I'm reminded of just how in control you are. Uh, Lord, that brings peace to my bones. It brings peace to my anxious soul and my spirits uh, steadied by that knowledge today. So I pray that that same knowledge and that same stability would be uh, manifest in this, this room and to the listeners and whoever's listening to the podcast right now. They would be reminded of God's solid, firm foundation that will never fail. For a thousand generations, you have been faithful. And it's with that I say, amen. Guys, today we are looking square into the face of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a is a pivotal moment. There's always pivotal moments. Every, every chapter, it seems like Luke... Obviously, he didn't write it with chapters in mind. He didn't put verses, numbers, and he didn't put chapters. He just wrote on a scroll. And uh, so we have the benefit of having it numeric, you know, some numeric markings. And it's kind of nice to be able to study scripture like this. So uh, we are looking at that chapter 11. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but last week and the weeks prior to that, we had a very big moment happen. Um, this moment was simply put a miracle. This miracle uh, was the opening of the third key, the opening of the kingdom of God, the gospel message to be preached to the Gentiles. Thank you, Larry. The Gentiles received the gospel. Who was the man? Here's a little Bible quiz. Who was the man who was the kingpin, if you will, or the first person in? <laughs> who was? What was his name? Well, Peter was the apostle who was, no, it wasn't Paul. Yes, Centurion, what's his name? Cornelius. Cornelius, thank you, Nate, gets a sticker. Cornelius, yeah, Cornelius is our, is our guy. He was God's appointed first one through the gate. Uh, him and his whole family, uh, we, we read what were filled with the Holy Spirit, which is by definition, the definition of being saved, if if you will, the Jewish people, we we really we really today will be looking at the expected result of said salvation. The Jewish people began rejoicing and created a parade, and they they paraded through Jerusalem and they had fireworks and uh, they they all uh, you know threw a big party and and, and everybody was happy. No, 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 they were not, uh, they were not at all. 
Yeah, that's not biblical because it didn't happen. They absolutely did not do any of that. Uh, that was not the result of this uh, crazy miracle. Rather, they admonished Peter for daring to cross that sacred line. Separating Jews from Gentiles, they stepped right over He stepped right over it, didn't he? Well, that's not going to go down without a fight. That's some serious sacred ground. So somebody, let's start this little meeting, this little study off, this class off with Acts chapter 11, 1 through 3, just three, the first three verses. Somebody please. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized them, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There it is. How dare you? How dare you? Um, after Cornelius' household, family members all sitting around received the gospel, the news obviously spread throughout Judea, among the church. And the spread of this news was super swift and super equally stunning. It's like, are you kidding me? Like it'd be like looking, uh, it'd be like saying the the Yeti exists, or a Bigfoot is actually been spotted. Um, but notice what part of the news actually interests the Jews, huh? What was that? I mean, what was interesting about it? Because that's some, something to note that the actual part that made the Jewish people interested in it was something a little bit unique. And may I add, a little bit inappropriate. It was not the miracle of the Gentiles receiving the grace of God, was it? What was it? Yeah, it's the fact that Peter would dare eat with Gentiles. That's it. Just have supper. Just have supper with Gentiles. Do you see that? This isn't the fact. They're not, they're not going, I can't believe God did that. No, they said, I can't believe Peter Eight with dogs. Literally. They they call Gentiles dogs. This was deeply historic. Jew, Jewish people and Gentiles alike know that they are not to be in the same room for histor history says this, uh, literature, antiquity. It goes down through the ages. Jews and Gentiles. Peter just crossed over the biggest sacred line, and God had everything to do with it, and what was so fascinating about it? Nope, it wasn't that God did it. It's that Peter ate with Gentiles. Do you see that? The Jewish point of view concerning the Gentiles was so fixed by teachings and customs, and listen to me for a second, that they totally overlooked the miracle of God that's in view. Does that ring a bell? I mean, I don't know what I'm talking to or who I'm talking to right now, but I come from a little bit of a lot of church, a lot of church background, where we did a lot of traditions, we did a lot of stuff, a lot of old school things that have been adopted for years, and nothing wrong with that, but listen to me, brothers and sisters, that the Jewish people were in those same boots, and they were so concerned with the traditions and customs that they totally missed the miracle of God that was on display 
right paraded in front of them. And instead, they focused on Peter's, listen to this, audacity. That's a word that I would write down. The audacity that is daring to cross that uncrossable line. There was a reasonable case to be made against Peter, in this case, in that his actions were likely to provoke the anger of the unbelieving Jews. Perhaps, just my opinion here, that Peter's church, that Peter's church brethren were concerned that Peter's actions would bring even more pain and suffering onto the church. Meaning like, what you doing that for? We're having enough trouble with the Jews. Why are you opening it up to all those Gentiles to take, take action and violence upon us too? Why would you do that, man? Regardless, their, their criticism ignored and the obvious conclusion that God ordained this. This outcome is ordained by God. So Peter's actions were not only warranted, but required. Let that sink in for a second. In fact, Peter's actions were according to the direction of the Spirit. So his success in persuading Cornelius concerning the gospel should have been proof in itself to the Jewish brethren and sisters that this was a work ordained by God. Nevertheless, guess who was the most critical of Peter? Do you know who was the most critical of Peter based upon the text here? The apostles. Wait, what? That's not what the story is supposed to be about. They're not supposed to be against Peter. Au contraire, mon frere. They were the most critical of Peter. We should take note that even the apostles were critical because how that applies to us. But the principal criticism came from the party of, Larry said it in the reading, the party of what? There was a party of circumcision. Strange, right? There's a party of circumcision. The, the Jewish folks made a, a political party out of circumcision. I mean, hey, what party do you belong to? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm, a, I'm circumcision. I mean, it's a little, little awkward, right? A little bit uh, crazy, but it's not crazy to them. It was a distinct line whether or not you're a, a real Jew or you're not. So Galatians 2.11-13, through 13, Paul referred to the existence of this faction in Galatians 2, and he talks about the negative influences. Listen to this real quick. It says, But when uh, Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter in Greek, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. There it is. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You remember this classic feud? Paul, Peter, he's saying, Peter used to got, he was used to open up that third door, and he ate with Gentiles. Then he pulled back. He reeled back to his old ways because of the pressure from the party of the circumcision. Sadly, 
it seems that even the early church was burdened by divisions and false teachings as it is today. Sorry to say, this has been a thing that's been going on a while. It's not something new in your church. You might think that it's, oh, it's so bad, and that feud that's happening, and these people arguing, and these factions. Guys, it's like old wallpaper. You strip it down, it's people are going to put new, new up. It's all going to be another cycle. Humans have been doing this a long time. The party of the circumcision, I can I can just picture their like shirts. You know, they have like I'd hate to see what the logo is, but uh, but uh, the the absolute thing is happening today in the churches. It's like I'm in I'm part of this faction. I'm a part of this faction. I'm I'm a part of this party. The party of the circumcision was given that name because they advocated for the necessity for the church to not just become believers in Jesus, but to still practice the Jewish traditions, dietary restrictions, washing your hands, reading the Torah, going to the going to uh, the mikvahs, going to Yom Kippur, plus Jesus. Do you see this? They went back to the old law when Jesus fulfilled it. This is going to be a big thing in Acts, so keep that in mind. It's also worth noting that the church doesn't seem hesitant to challenge Peter's decision to go to the Gentiles. This would argue against the view that Peter was a pope. Think about this for a second. Y'all, much respect to my Catholic brothers and sisters, but here's the deal. Peter... There's a, there's a very strong argument here, uh, logically, not emotionally, historically and literally, uh, in this context, that this would seem to denote that the papery is actually fallible because they would argue that Peter was a pope, not a pope, with that kind of absolute authority assigned to the popes today. Why? Because Peter decided to go to the Gentiles, and he was in fact withdrawn. He made a boo-boo, if you will. He made a a slight error after the third key was open, and Paul steps in, as we see, to carry on the church and build the church, starting in Antioch, as you guys will see. This is a very strong argument. The church has never had a pope or any other singular spiritual leader apart from Christ. Can you guys agree with me on that one? You don't got to get all mad about it. You just got to be firm. You got to just know why. The the idea that there's a man or a man-made structure or infrastructure that has been placed in place for Jesus is nonsense. Such offices are man-made and ultimately destructive. And if you don't believe me, look at history. Entire nations and genocide and, and crazy, crazy stuff happens when man steps in and says, I am like God. Watching this scene, we can certainly see better why it required such a monumental effort on God's part to move Peter towards Cornelius. Remember the Tanner's house and the, the I, I said it was like a modern day or an ancient meatpacking plant. 
the 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 nonsensical part of the story is on purpose to punctuate the incredible nature of what's happening and taking place. This had to be an interesting moment for Peter too, right? He was just as reluctant reluctant to travel to Cornelius or any other Gentile. Only after God took extraordinary measures, going over the top, would Peter actually do what he's told. Now he finds himself called to account for doing the very thing he was opposed to doing in the first place. Have you ever been there? Like, you know, you're like hesitant to do something. I got stories. I'm, I'll, I'll leave you. I'll, I won't bore you. But I have stories in my life, testimony, where God called me to go do something. I go and step out, step out of the water, and I go whoosh all the way under. I make a fool of myself. I say to God, I'm wringing out my clothes. I told you I didn't want to do that. You know what I mean? Does that ring a bell? Peter's got to still have that human flesh going. Hey, this wasn't my idea, guys. Peter's only recourse is to what? I don't know who read ahead this week, but we are going to dive in. Who's going to be the reader? Go to verse 4. We are going to go all the way to verse 17, and we're going to hear what Peter has to say in response. And his only recourse is to replay what happened. Explain it. Yeah. So who wants to go ahead and say, uh, read out loud what Peter says? Go for it. Yep. But Peter began, and I explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Hmm. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Yeah. Drop the mic, you know? I mean, Peter wanted to walk that whole thing, walk his critics through his experience. Like he's trying to say, hey, do you, you see what I mean now? You see, you see it? It's kind of weird, right? His hope is they will conclude, as Peter did, that taking the gospel to Cornelius is the only option. The story follows exactly as we saw it unfold in chapter 10, doesn't it? He doesn't, he doesn't miss a T-cross, a, a period. It's like verbatim. And Peter's, Peter's story climaxes with his retelling of the moment of the Holy Spirit's descending upon the Gentiles. And Peter's 
Peter's story reminds his audience that his experience mirrors his own. His point, of course, is that the arrival of the Holy Spirit is proof. It's the proof. The proof's in the pudding, as my grandpa used to say. The work of God's salvation. Is it a bunch of good works? Is it a bunch of fantastic kind of ya-ya? Maybe sometimes, but the one sure way to say God's moving is the Holy Spirit. Paul echoes the same thinking, thinking in Romans when he says this, Romans 8.14. It says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Simple. Hey, are you a son of God? Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Then yes. The fundamental definition of a Christian is anyone indwelled by the God, by God's Spirit. You're going to hear me say that a lot. Because like, let me tell you, I've been, I've been asked that a lot. What's 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 this whole Christian thing? I can't define it as a political party. I can't say, well, it's because I go to this church. I can't say it because I was raised in a house. That's a new, that's a that's a real popular thing. Well, I was raised Christian. Yeah, but what are you? You know, <laughs> I was raised Catholic, so cool, but who do you put your faith in? Well, the fundamental definition is that for this is the one way that one becomes a Christian. There's not, there's not any other way. And it is not an experience, an experience shared with unbelievers. It's not. Secondly, Peter draws his listeners' attention to Jesus' own words concerning the meaning of the Spirit's arrival. Jesus said that the arrival or baptism of the Holy Spirit would be an expected experience for all who follow him. So Peter's going, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? He sees the Spirit uh, fall upon these people, just as he did in the first experience. And he goes, what? There it is. For a third time. I recognize that. I know that sign. I recognize that smell. <laughs> you know, it's like walking into your house and you smell your own you know, your own house. Guys, this is like, this is a big deal for Peter, seeing that J Jesus is at the wheel again. Therefore, the arrival of the Spirit upon Gentiles confirms that they have become followers of Jesus, just like the Jews had at Pentecost. Finally, Peter makes his conclusion in verse 17. Review that for real quick. It says, therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Man, I wish I could say that more often. If they received the same gift, the Spirit, from the same giver, God, for the same reason, after, after believing in Jesus, then how could Peter stand in the way? The answer, he can't. You can't. We can't. Notice also that the, Peter recognizes the unique significance of the Holy Spirit's arrival upon these believers. He's even blown away. Peter says that Cornelius' experience was similar to those who were apostles and that they had at the beginning. The beginning means Pentecost. When did it all start? Pentecost. Remember our first couple meetings, first couple classes? His point is that Pentecost experience had not been continuous. It wasn't a thing that just happened forever after that point. There's specific 
punctuated moments, three to be exact. It happened only on rare occasions, so therefore pay attention is the point. And each occasion was notable because the Spirit gave such a clear, distinct sign. You can't confuse it with something I ate. You can't confuse it with the UFO sighting. This is only Jesus doing what only Jesus can do with the people that only Jesus said he would do it with. Sorry, I'm getting all, my hands getting all, whoa, whoa. So there can only be no other conclusion drawn from these events. Acts eleven eighteen. check this out. The next verse, very, just one more verse. It says this. When they heard this, they quieted down. And glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The crowd listening to Peter, they, they did, they listened. Then they acknowledged the obvious, though I might add remarkable and miraculous news, that God was granting repentance to the Gentiles also. The repentance was granted. Isn't that interesting? Don't, don't just let, let me spew that out of my mouth without pausing for a second. Granting repentance? Hmm. Try that with your children next time. Listen to me, son. Um, you really screwed up there. I'm going to grant you uh, the opportunity to repent. Have you ever said that to your children? No. I, get, I, 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 I bet you you haven't. But here we see that repentance leads to life. Repentance leads to life. Their choice of words here is important. This isn't just like a haphazard uh, literary device. They recognize first, this is a work of God. Number one, this is a work of God. This opening for the Gentiles was made possible because God permitted it. Number two, they imply that without God's willingness to grant repentance, there's that grant repentance phrase, the Gentiles would never have come to faith. And I might add that the Jewish Christians wouldn't have come to faith without it being granted the gift of repentance. Paul, again, echoes this high view of God's sovereignty and salvation. And this is soteriology. I mean, this is crazy stuff. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, it says this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I thought that's funny. Uh, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, listen to this, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, guys, I could preach for about three hours on just this one, those three, these three verses. This is a incredible study on, on the origin of salvation. But Paul distinguishes between two types of sorrow. Two types of sorrow. Worldly sorrow 
and godly sorrow. What's the difference? I'm glad you asked. The worldly kind is the kind we all are familiar with. Do I really need to tell you guys what that is? Worldly sorrow is, darn it, I made a mistake. Rats. I really screwed up. That's the world's example of this sorrow. But the regret itself that I just displayed, may I tell you or suggest that it's self-centered? Darn it, I got caught. Darn it, my mom got me. My best friend caught me. Uh, I I got to go to jail. You know, I got pulled over by the cops. And, you know, whatever it is, that's the worldly, self-centered type of sorrow. You got sorry, sorry that you got caught. You know what I'm saying? Does that resonate? But we may be truly sorry, but the, but the focus on our concern is within ourselves. The Bible talks at times of this kind of worldly sorrow, and the best example I could come up with is Esau. You guys remember Esau? Check this out. Hebrews 12, 16 sums it up. It says this, And there, there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. What? That's crazy. Who sold his birthright for a single meal, literally a, a bowl of soup, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau, he felt great sorrow over his mistake for selling his birthright. He screwed up, in other words. He even cried. He went boo-hoo-hoo over the mistake and sought his father's forgiveness. But his sorryness, his sorrow, was self-centered. He regretted losing the inheritance and regretted disappointing his dad. I remember disappointing my dad, and I wasn't sorry for the right reasons. Interestingly, in this case, not in my life, but in this, this case, the writer of Hebrews says, despite his crying fit, Esau found no place for repentance. Notice that while Esau was displaying one kind of sorrow, he was denied. Whoa, that's crazy, right? A different type of sorrow. That this is the second type of sorrow that I want to bring up. They're, they're two different. They're completely independent from each other. It's possible to feel sorry without experiencing repentance, I'm trying to suggest. You don't have to take my word for it. I'm just suggesting that's what this is saying. Esau proves it. The language in the Hebrew makes clear that the source of repentance is outside the person. It's not right here. You're not going to muster yourself up. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps so you can actually repent. 
Well, that's some big, crazy gears that are shifting around in your head, I bet, on that one. By whom, then, if not by Esau himself, Esau was rejected, right? So how was he rejected and by whom? I have to find the answer to that. I kind of got a crisis of faith if I don't, right? And he found no place in repentance, it says. This implies that Esau never arrived at godly sorrow, though he sought it. You can seek it all day long, but only God can give it. The only conclusion we can make is that repentance is a spiritual sorrow that only arrives when it is granted and given and permitted by our God. Back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that in verse 7-9 in Corinthians, that the Corinthians were made sorrowful by Paul's previous letter. Made them feel like garbage. But Paul was more interested in the way his letter led them to a different kind of sorrow. Paul's admonishment made them feel badly, but it also produced a sorrow that led to repentance. Here it is, godly sorrow. And then Paul adds in verse 10 that his God, this godly sorrow came as a result of the will of God. Wait a minute, Ben. Are you trying to tell me that God uses sorrow? He makes his children sorry? Yeah, you bet. That's exactly what I'm telling you. This confirms what we read in the letter of Hebrews. Godly sorrow or repentance is a spiritual regret. This is big, this is deep, is a spiritual regret that comes only when all only when the will God permits it. When God wills it, in other words. And to sum up this principle, Paul says in verse 11 that the worldly sorrow leads only to temporary regret that is powerless and, and does not affect spiritual change. But godly sorrow hmm, produces repentance, which is a precursor to salvation. I often uh, characterize, I don't know if you guys want to write this down or not, but little r and big r repentance. Try to re try to come up with ways of explaining this to the kids, you know. But little r and big r, what's the difference? Repentance with the little r is the feeling of sorrow or regret when we experience when we are convicted when we're convicted over a sin, right? This kind of sorrow is common to both Christians and non-Christians alike. You don't got to be a Christian to feel the little r repentance. Dang it, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Not going to do that again. Sorry. It's the normal reaction when we bear the consequences of the sin that this world produces. It's the dang, man, sorry, man. But here, what's what about the repentance with the big R? The big R is the unique spiritual awakening that the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit, accomplishes in the heart of a person as a preparation to receive faith. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's an awakening to a life 
of sin apart from God. Now, this kind of godly sorrow isn't the same feeling that the world that the world experiences in sorrow. It isn't fixed on a certain behavior or a mistake. It creates a more profound sense of shame or regret, and it's long-lasting. It's an awakening to a, to a life of sin apart from God. It can only come if and when God grants it, because it finds its origin in a work of God in the heart. This isn't something you can muster up in a concert or a big church meeting or an emotional stupor or drugs. <laughs> I mean, people are big into that these days. Hallucinogens and crazy new age practices. Guys, this is not any of that. This is only produced from God. So in Acts 11.18, the audience responds to Peter's testimony with the correct conclusion, I might call it. The response of Cornelius was evidence that the Spirit of God had granted to the Gentiles the gift of repentance. They confirmed that the kingdom of God had been extended to the Gentiles, and the proof was in the pudding. The proof of this change was the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the speaking of tongues, speaking in tongues. Once again, demonstrating that this is a unique event. Available, the gift of God's grace is becoming available to a new group of humanity. That's a big deal. Acts eleven nineteen. Can somebody read 19 through 24? Coming around, Ben, guys. 11, 19 through 24. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word no, to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the land of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Was that uh, 24. 24, sorry. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we got Barnabas in the scene now. Before moving forward with the story of Peter, Luke adds another important detail about the movement, the outward movement of the church. Some believers, I'm sorry, some believe this narrative runs parallel to the events of Acts 8 through 10. But I believe Luke is describing events that occur both before and after and as a result of chapter 11. I'm going to hopefully explain that. Specifically, Luke backs up the chronologically uh, this chronological order briefly in mentioning the persecution of Stephen and the evangelism that burst out because of that. The persecution caused an outward movement of the gospel, and, and we talked about that, right? It's just going out. But it was not a uniform movement. Most of the disciples were only interested in preaching in the diaspora. Not going to those Gentiles. Especially Gentiles. We're not even going past the boundary line. We're just going to the diaspora. But later, after Peter's experience with Cornelius, guess what? 
the disciples were kind of open to the idea. Hmm. Maybe this ministry could go to the Gentiles. I mean, it's pretty obvious that 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 it is. So maybe I'm kind of willing to engage in some Gentile ministry. I'll just kind of maybe volunteer at the homeless shelter. I might just kind of maybe show up and kick the tires a little bit, see what's going on. And their success in finding converts was only possible because Peter had opened the kingdom for the Gentiles in chapter 10. Notably, they are preaching Lord Jesus. What's up with that? Do you guys see that? Lord Jesus. They are preaching Lord Jesus. In my NASB, it says they're preaching Lord Jesus. Whatever. Who, who else has that? They're, they're preaching the Lord Jesus in, in, in Acts 11.20. Is that what yours says? You guys know what's going on right there? It's an interesting thing. The, the Jews, if you back up to a couple chapters, they began preaching to the Jews about the Christ. To the Gentiles, they began to teach and preach about the Lord. Do you see the difference? Do you realize that if I would to say to a Gentile in, the, in those days, a Roman Gentile, that, guys, the Christ has come. They look at you like you're nuts. But they know what a Lord is. Because they've been, been required to. The distinction reflects the cultural and religious differences between pagan Gentiles and God-fearing Jews. The Jews knew of the promise of the Messiah and the Christ of God. Meaning the Son of God. The Savior, the Messiah. The promised one. The Gentiles knew nothing about this Messiah character. No, they wouldn't even understand what the word Christ means. They wouldn't literally have nothing, but they certainly knew of worship and of lords, multiple lords, as they were required to do in worshiping the Caesar, who was demanding their title of Lord. You couldn't address Caesar as anything other than Lord of Lords. Now they were taught of the greater Lord. And as a Roman, you know, you're, you're, gonna, you're kind of going like, whoa, that's kind of like blasphemous. You mean there's a better Caesar? There's like a, be there's a more powerful nation out there than Rome? You're kidding me? And this one offers eternal life. Wait, my Caesar doesn't do that. He just makes me pay taxes. As a result of this movement, the church in Jerusalem is still skeptical of this response and wants to verify it for themselves. So they call up their buddy, the very first megachurch pastor. His name is Barnabas. He, he, I call him the megachurch, the first megachurch, because he was popular, guys. He was loved. Everybody loved Barnabas. And when he spoke, everybody, he was the Joel Olstein of that era. No, I'm just joking. That's that's a bad, that's a bad uh, reference. But he was a he was a popular guy. So they're like, I know. Let's get old Barney. Let's send him north and get the real scoop of what's happening. Remember, Barnabas was a friend of Saul who introduced him to the church in Jerusalem following Saul's conversion. You remember this? While Barnabas has remained in Jerusalem in the church, and the church is blowing up, Barnabas is like, whoa, we got to baptize some people. He's trying to get children's ministry in order. He's trying to do like teen programs and summer camps. 
I mean, you can just <laughs> see it. Now Barnabas moves outward, packs his bags, and says, let's go on a little trip to see what all this crazy Gentile action's about. Antioch was his destination. And i got to show you guys a map real quick. So this is, this, is, uh, this is Jerusalem, clear down here. 300 miles all the way to the Syrian Antioch is where he's going. See this? This is this is the site of Antioch, a very important city. Antioch is a very important large Roman Empire seat. It's the third largest city in Rome, in the Roman Empire, only third to Rome and Alexandria. It was located 15 miles inland off the Med Sea. See that? There's a little river there for trading. And um, it was it's in modern-day Syria. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It contained 800,000 citizens. That's a big city, man. About 115,000, according to historians, were Jews. They were still outnumbered, but that's a lot. With many Gentile proselytes. Do you remember me saying what a proselyte is? the Gentile who's practicing Judaism. Like many Roman cities, it was also notorious as a city of, I'm just going to say, pleasure seekers. Roman satirists, I don't know if you guys are into to listening to Roman satire podcasts, but I am. How nerdy is that? Uh, but they, they claimed, I'm not going to cite my source, but uh, claimed that the city was so corrupt that its sewage contaminated Rome 1,300 miles away. Like, see, Rome's clear over here. Rome said, oh, this place is so gross, like so perverse and disgusting. I think we have some of their sewage in our, in our streets. Like many Roman cities, that's what it's all about. It's the city that it's in this city Think about this, that Jesus Christ decides to birth the Christian church. Let that sink in for a second. Not Jerusalem. But hear me out for a second. Not Tarsus, not Rome, not America. <laughs> Antioch. Not Omaha, Nebraska. Importantly, Antioch was also near Barnabas. Barnabas' home on the island of Cyprus. Crazy, right? So Barnabas lived here. That's where he was raised. He was doing ministry down here in Jerusalem. Guess where Paul was? Tarsus. Saul, I guess I could call him Saul of Tarsus. But Paul's hanging out up by Tarsus. That's where he's from. It's where his folks are from. That's where he went after Jerusalem. So it kind of explains to me why he chose to go to Antioch uh, because Barnabas is kind of familiar with the territory, so he's just going up. And what does he find? Well, first off, 90 miles. It's 90 miles from Tarsus to, to Antioch, and Paul's hanging out right here. Just keep that in mind. But he began 
when Barnabas arrives, he began to notice, and he did, he noticed a growing, thriving, vibrant, genuine Gentile church. Like, wait, what? Secondly, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused here. They He saw this, and he began to see that this Holy Spirit was under, the, these people were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas receives them as brothers and encourages them. That had to be weird for him. Like, I don't want to touch you, but here, give me a hug. I mean, it's like that. Like, as soon as, like, this is proximity issues here. You know, you like germaphobe, you know, like, where's the hand sanitizer? He busts through all of that and embraces them as brothers and sisters. But he also must have wondered how the church would have began to disciple and encourage this budding group of believers who were just drinking blood the week before. I mean, I'm just being brutally honest. Guys, these, these early Christian churches were not orthodox. These people were used to drinking blood, making sacrifices, carrying all the food to, to their god Bullock, uh, Moloch and the princess, or the, the goddesses and the, the Dianas and the, the Caesar. Guys, it was a mess. They weren't sitting at pews, you know, singing the, ne- the Maverick City music uh, worship songs. They didn't know any songs. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know anything. So Barnabas is doing what a good pastor does and goes, how are these people getting discipled? What about spiritual formation? What are we going to do with this, this spiritual health of these Christians? How do we build in sanctification? How do we work with the Spirit? So they, they lack the knowledge of the Scriptures that were heavily influenced, and they were heavily influenced by pagan practices. Sounds like a good combination to me. Who would care for this congregation so far from where it all happened? They're clear up here. Who's going to take care of them? Hmm. Who knows the culture? Hmm. Who's close by? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Rick. Saul, he's close by. Barnabas knew where to find the answer to that question. Acts 11.25 through 26, it says this. So he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Whoa! There it is. The first word ever used in Scripture that says everything about who you are today. It's the word Christian. As God would have it, the first Gentile church is founded near the, near the apostle appointed to the Gentiles, and his name was Paul. Wow. Coincidence? I think not. And Barnabas must have recognized by the Spirit that Saul was the right man for the job. In my opinion, this is me filling in a little text, that Saul must have confessed to Barnabas that he was feeling this. He's feeling the prick. Remember after his conversion, he met Barnabas. Barnabas became his friend. Guys, he must have had some sort of an influence in Barnabas's decision because he's literally, literally trying to think of anybody who would want to minister to Gentiles. Nevertheless, we know that God has orchestrated these events overarching, and he put him in this position to begin this ministry. 
And remember, it's been about nine years, nine years since Saul's conversion. Yet he hasn't yet began to do any ministry. Did you know that? There was a, <laughs> he was three years in the, in the desert. Remember the third level of heaven? Going to, going to heavenly seminary? And we, he never actually got behind a pulpit, if you will, and put that in quotes. He never actually pastored a church. He didn't do anything till this moment. Now that that barrier to the Gentiles has been removed as ordained by the will of God, the circumstances change, and Saul's led into ministry in our little town called Antioch, and big town called Antioch. And in this place, the term Christian is established. Guys, this name Christian is significant uh, because it's a distinct religious party or affiliation throughout history. It was distinct from pagan Gentiles and religious Jews. By adopting a new name, the church recognized the fact that the family of God had changed and separated itself spiritually from either or distinction. Though we were Gentiles in the church, there, there were Gentiles in the church and Jews in the church, the church was neither Jew or Gentile at that point, according to God's sovereignty. It was an entirely new concept created by God and called into existence for a time and purpose. That's why we are Christians by faith, regardless of our heritage before. Doesn't matter what country you're from. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter where you were raised or how, how godly your, your folks were. Christian is a completely different category. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Finally, I'm going to end this, on, end this up by saying how Luke relates an interesting encounter. 11.27-30. through 30. Can somebody read that final chunk of Scripture for us? 27-30. through 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So the prophets coming down from Jerusalem. You remember me talking about that? They're not going down. They're going up. But wait, it's down. Because anything away from Jerusalem is down. So the church had prophets back then. What's going on with that? Well, during this period, because the canon of Scripture had not been closed yet with the book of Revelation, there was such thing as modern prophets that are still available to bring God's Word in this way. They didn't have God's Word, you remember? They didn't. They didn't have the New Testament. The prophets tell of a coming famine in the world, and the famine would bring destitution to the brethren in Judea and Jerusalem particularly. In a time of famine, in an age without welfare or government aid, people had to depend on family and tribes it was the tribe mentality. The, the, uh, the village raises a child, as they say. So in a famine, 
the church in Jerusalem, which was largely Jewish, would have been disowned by the Jewish families. Like what I'm saying is they can't run back to mom and dad who live in Jerusalem because they've been denounced because they're now believers in Jesus. Ouch. So now what's going to happen? So the famine would have been very devastating. You guys ever take a step of faith into the into the walk with Christ, into a walk with Christ, only to find out you're alienated from your physical, worldly bloodline because of their faith walk? Yeah, it's kind of lonely, isn't it? It's particularly trying when you come into worldly trials and temptations and tribulations. You want to go back to where it's comfortable. This is what they were experiencing. Luke says the Spirit sent these prophets to the church in Antioch to inform them to the, to, of the need to send support to the church in Jerusalem during this time of famine. That's interesting on how God takes care of His people. Since we know that the Lord is at work in producing these events, we got to ask this question, why? <laughs> why? Why do you do this, God? God is bringing about circumstances to teach the Gentile church how to handle the responsibility to honor and support their Jewish brethren in keeping with Israel's, I might add, specific and preeminent role in God's plan of salvation. Does that ring a bell? This is a very specific lesson. Do not reject the Jews, to not walk away from them, do not denounce them. Secondly, this act of goodwill helps cement the Jews' acceptance of the new Gentile church in the family of God. I think it's significant to uh, mention that in my visit to Israel, I walked into one of the great, uh, one of a one of the Jerusalem uh, museums, if you will. It's a, it's a, it's a huge structure, and in the in the walls are fixed a bunch of nations' shields, um, and all of them are signed from the different continents of support of Israel. And so, if you were in support in the United Nations of the nation of Israel, you got to put your big shield, the big national shield, on the wall. There's the United States of America sitting there with George W. Bush's signature, and it was an interesting moment where I. I sat, I sat there in that building and I looked up and I was thinking to myself, God bless that guy, man, because under such extreme pressure to just completely do our own thing, you see this, this amazing attribute of what's being displayed in this chapter here, said and produced again, maybe he or maybe he did not even know what he's doing. But I'm saying the support of Israel is a significant lesson to learn in the overarching narrative of God's story. You cannot overlook that. You cannot take a people group and go like this. You cannot overlook the significance of even the unforeseen events in life that God uses to alter your norm. He's all about creating a new normal. Don't you know? So I'm, I'm going to let this rest for today, and it's 12.59. I need to wrap this up, but here is a couple little reflection questions that I'd like to, to suggest. 
that have you ever been so steeped in religion that you fail to see the miracle right in front of your face? You, you, just, you just don't see it because you're so, you're so mad that people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. What about number two? Have I ever been offended by a move of God? Dang. That was, I'm telling you this because that's me. I have. I'm like, why would you even help those people, God? I mean, let, just put a fence around them and let them just kill each other off. Have you ever had those dark thoughts? Maybe I'm the only one, sorry. Uh, have you ever had those gnar gnarly conversations with a family member where you're going, why are we talking about this, about God's people? Like, that's kind of inappropriate. I have, and I've repented, the capital R. <laughs> what is the difference between small r and big R when it comes to repentance? You ever thought about that? I mean, I want you guys to really think about this this week of the tool of repentance, the gift of repentance, the grace that God gives us to repent. Whoa, what an amazing God. So I just want to stop for a second, pray, and let us reflect upon the grace of God that saved you. And you didn't do anything. You didn't have anything to give, and He gave it. You didn't have a plan, He did. You weren't perfect, He was. And you couldn't save yourself, but He did. Jesus, thank you for that. Thanks for this group of people who says yes to you. But even the repentance that caused their salvation and their faith and where they sit today in, in their Christian walk, I, I pray, I just, I'm just like pleading with you that you would cement, solidify is a good word, solidify that amazing miracle, the realization, the revelation of the miracle that took place when you saved us. We do not want to de 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 uh, demote that to second place, to some other passion in our life. We repent for that. Lord, we're not just sorry because we got caught. We're sorry, deep sorrow, for the blood that was shed on the cross. Lord, I think about Easter coming, coming up in the, the Lent season. I just, I just, I mean, not in a religious way. I hope, I pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would move over this place to whoever's listening to this, and that you might grant us the gift of understanding the gravity and the weight. Oh, I just think of all creation crying out to you. I think of the mere, the, the mere uh, being in your presence. I can't do anything other than worship you. I, I want to join the rocks. I want to join the birds in the clouds shouting out your praise. Because, God, if we don't, the rocks will. So I pray that we might just drop our jaws in awe of a God that's so willed to save me, to save you, the listener, us. As we study God's Word, Lord, I pray that you might shed light upon it in a new way that's that's completely life transformational. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer. I hope you found the content enriching and useful in your daily walk with Christ. Remember, the journey of faith does not end here. Keep diving into the Word, seeking wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and allowing its truth to shape your life. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more listeners just like you. Until next time, may the peace of God be with you, guiding you through your week until we meet together again.